Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Excellent. Okay, like, I know I know you know this, but, uh, you know, we normally record in the evening UK time. Often when we record, I... I like to have a podcasting beverage. You know, what better way? Oh yeah, of course. You know, you gotta crack open a crack open a, a cold one with the boys. Um so I um I have a I have a podcasting beverage that is suitable for today's uh, episode, I think. Oh, would you would you mind letting our listeners know the uh the make and model of this canned brew you're currently enjoying? Um I, well, I have yet to try it, so I'm going to I'm I'm a little nervous, but this is this is <laughs> I staring at me on my desk is is a can of Rock and Rye Fago. Hell yeah. So here, here we go. Here here we go. Here we go. Ooh, oh, you hear that snap? We're doing it live, folks. The, the first <laughs> oh my, sip of rock oh and roll. Oh my god! This, this, like, oh, the first thing that hits that. Woo! There's a bouquet. <laughs> there is a bouquet. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's Jesus an acquired Christ. taste for sure. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Uh, the, the first thing that I notice um, is on, yeah, on, okay. on the side of the can, there is a warning label uh, that's, of course, yep. that says um, E129 may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not particularly sure if this beverage is actually legal in the UK. <laughs> um, I... I, I it it certainly it certainly tastes like carbonated water and glucose fructose syrup. Um, <laughs> s- strong notes, strong notes of that all the way through it. Now, now, does does the warning label also tell you that within about thirty minutes of your first sip, you have like an eighty percent chance to start sprouting clown paint? Uh, I can already feel it, sort of like forming beneath the skin. Oh, yep, yep. That's that's a it's a nice tingling sensation. Uh, but my word, that definitely tastes like, uh, it, oh, it's red. Yeah. It tastes red. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For listeners out there, rock and rye is my favorite Fago because it's got the smoothest of all of the red flavored sodas. Um, and my, my goodness, I, I, it, it tastes very red and, and I, I, I feel like this probably shouldn't be legal in this country. So I, I, I like to think of Rock and Rye as the sipping man's red soda, right? <laughs> like this isn't, you don't, you, you don't do shots of Rock and Rye, you know, at, at the club. You, this is something, you're by the fire, you put some Rock and Rye over ice, and, and you, you slowly nurse, you know, a half glass of that. So um, throughout this episode, you'll, you will get to hear in real time... <laughs> my, my body absorb the pure concentrated juggalo energy that, that um has been unleashed onto my consciousness 
Yes, that, that attention-shredding formula that's in all Fago products. Um, good grief. <laughs> I have no idea how this company has stayed in business. <laughs> I, I have I have a theory. I have a theory which is yes, which yes. is that all all American soft drinks are basically either this or like um LaCroix. And that and that's Oh totally, yeah. And that I feel like that explains a lot about America. <laughs> There, 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 there's a there's like a historical materialism here too, because the original American soft drinks you either had like there were cocaine and pepsin designed to cure your ailments, or they were full of radium and, and designed to imp- improve your physical attributes. And today those have grown into Fago with its mysterious concoction of chemicals and LaCroix, which is just water. Yeah, w- water that has been waved in the direction of fruit. <laughs> uh, I, I remember the first time that I tried LaCroix um, and I was like, this doesn't really taste of anything. And Americans, this is a British person telling you that something has no flavor. And I, <laughs> That's grim. That's grim. <laughs> you, you know, it does have flavor, though. Fago. Plenty of favor. Flavor. Oh, oh, God, oh, God. It's, it's a favor, the flavor it gives you. It, it doesn't get better the more you, <laughs> the more you drink it. Um, <laughs> hello, everybody. Hello and welcome to uh the, the fago cast the fago, fago beverage review <laughs> apparently is what we're doing today it is it is a brand new it is a brand new year um it is a brand new year um and we are starting we are starting the year with an entire month of episodes about horror and music and if you had not guessed it from um this honestly just mind-blowing beverage that my co-host has managed to persuade me to drink uh we are going to be talking about uh icp we are talking about the legends that are the insane clown posse and um this is a this is what a 30-year music career in in horrorcore underground music professional wrestling uh soda salespeople and so to help contextualize to gut <laughs> so to guide to to guide our discussion into these genuine auteurs of of horrorcore hip hop um i i am i am so excited to get to say ash can you please explain to me and everyone listening what today's episode is all about I I feel safe and assured in the words I'm about to speak. No one will be able, besides perhaps you or maybe Labor Kyle, no one will be able to guess where this one starts and where it goes. Writing on Dostoevsky, Mikhail Bakhtin first developed the theoretical framework for the carnivalesque. The carnival, due to its chaotic and recombinatory nature, can never be truly captured by the language of philosophy. But it can, however, be lived through the languages of the arts. At a cultural vantage point far beyond Bakhtin and Dostoevsky, Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope forged a more literal expression of the carnivalesque. The insane clown posse does more than just reconfigure acid rap. It dissolves expected cultural boundaries. These dark carnival considerations cast countless questions into how we expect the real to look and to feel. As carnival tents emerge from a chaotic confluence of gothic social energies, So too does the theorizing of the Joker's cards. 
This is not art criticism. This is a conjuration. This is a theory fiction that lives, breathes, contradicts, and expands as its very essence is renegotiated by the people who live it. As Nick Land wrote, nothing is more complex than simplification. What art takes from enigma, it more than replenishes in the instantiation of itself, in the labyrinthine puzzles it plants in history. With every question answered, a deeper unknown is revealed. The labyrinth reveals itself as a carnival, and we have a part to play. It's in donning the clown paint that we find why we wore our faces in the first place. No longer is there time for words, only performance. Come one, come all, take your ticket, whether it be your first or last. Enter into our carnival for a one-time show of tantalizing terror. Join us as we dispatched the dopest discourse and juggle the juggalo jargon as we discuss the insane clown posse. Um, I am, I'm so, I'm so excited that we've managed to combine, um, ICP with everybody's, <laughs> with everybody's favorite boomer neo-reactionary philosopher, Nick Land. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, it's the, it's the Dostoevsky to Nick Land to ICP pipeline that you've heard so much about on Twitter.com. Uh, just like ICP, Nick Land was biggest and coolest in the late 90s. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, for everyone out there listening, Nick Land got real bad real fast. <laughs> mm. Okay, I'm having some more of this cherry cola and cream soda flavored carbonated beverage, and it does not get better, everybody. But where 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 shall we begin? I mean, I I, I heard the air quotes around flavored <laughs> right there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not sure really what's in this. It's a dark witch's brew. Well, I, th- I think I think to start our uh, uh, conversation, you know, my my, my jug of pricey is complete, which means that now now we have paid the admission price and we can enter the dark carnival of discourse, mm-hmm. beginning with psychopathic formalism. Absolutely. Um, what what do we mean by the carnivalesque? Let's let's begin there because it's an incredibly important. Uh, concept for ICP. It's it's one of their <laughs> it's one of their kind of key artistic motifs. Something they return to again and again. But how do we how do we ground this? How do we kind of give it a history that sort of gives it a little bit more clarity? What what it's for? We're we're going to get into uh, a specific history of a certain type of clown at the end of the episode. But but I think to to ground the carnivalesque, there's a few. Uh, key points that, that things have to embody. And, and I think the, the carnivalesque is something that's necessarily and inherently a little chaotic at the least. It's, it's hard to pin down the carnivalesque. Um, one, one of the things that's, I think, universally true of all manifestations of the carnivalesque is that it brings together inherent, inherently contradictive points. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, Bakhtin's examples of this were like, it brings together old and young. It brings together rich and poor. It's this collision of things that would otherwise not be in contact with each other. Yeah, there is a a um, a a, a pr- uh, profaning of social order and social norms as well. Uh, I think it's in Bakhtin's piece on Dostoevsky and his and the problem of Dostoevsky's poetics that he talks yes, that yes. he that he talks about the four different kinds of what makes something carnivalesque and it's this admixture. So it's this intermingling of like disparate elements 
It's like the profaning of a social order. It's a kind of eccentricity of behavior. Um, all of these things feed into a kind of multi-layered, polyvocal, kind of textual performance, which is something that Bakhtin writes about in, in relation to both Dostoevsky and Rabelais as well. Yes, and, and the Carnivalesque is also deeply experiential. This is something that it's... You, you struggle to, to theorize the Carnivalesque from the sidelines compared to the experiential nature of immersing into the Carnivalesque. There, there's something deeply embodied about this particular manifestation of the arts. Yes, absolutely. Carnivals ha- the Carnivalesque has to be... Um, it has to be experienced, not just observed. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that's I think that serves as a good grounding for the carnivalesque. And to talk about another thing that I always think about when when people bring up Bakhtin, we need to talk about uh, uh, juggalo clown wrestling. Uh, yes, absolutely. We should talk about one of the most serious uh, um, theoretical ideas, which is professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh and, my and God. I actually mean this seriously because um, Roland Barthes writes about professional wrestling and the idea of spectacle. Uh, professional wrestling being a kind of narrative condensed down to its very basic uh, kind of um, semiotics. Its narrative is kind of ge- its storytelling is a so- sort of series of gestures. So that that's why professional wrestling is so engaging. Um, and I think it's so. I think it's so interesting that that's how that's how the members of ICP started, right? They started out as in the wrestling scene. Yeah, they have they have this interesting, you know, uh, Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope are kind of uh, the two uh, to, to use a carnivalesque metaphor. They're the two tentpole figures of Insane mm-hmm. Clown Posse. There are there are countless other artists that move in and out of uh, Psychopathic Records and Insane Clown Posse over the years. Um, they, they, they get their start, um, you know, growing up poor in Detroit, working their way through those difficult, like economic and social conditions, really inspired by a local Detroit rapper uh, named Isham, who did like acid rap. They wanted to do a spin on that. And no, nobody was or has been doing what ICP does. <laughs> um, and, and wrestling, wrestling has always been a big part of that. And especially this kind of like deformalized backyard wrestling right like they, they meet uh wrestlers like sabu really early on in yeah, yeah, yeah. that that moves them forward so what, what, what do you make of this then how do we how do we uh theorize uh juggalo clown wrestling well uh i think it's i think it's 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 about visual semiotics right it's about the it's about Wrestling depends upon immediately comprehensible persona, right? You should know. You should know if you, if you are if you're watching if you're watching a show. You should know who the heel is. You should know who like the baby face mm-hmm. is. You should know what the story is without having to have watched all of the previous shows. You should be able to get yeah. that. And like this is what ICP are exceptionally good at, right? The the uniform, like the juggalo aesthetic is about creating a certain category and it's a, it's the outsider category that immediately makes them both, like it's no coincidence that like, you know, it's teenagers that first love them, right? People who 20, 25 years ago were also growing up as kind of like weird, maybe like socially alienated outsiders, outsiders who were interested in sort of like transgressive or pseudo-transgressive culture. 
Of course you'd be into ICP. Makes complete sense. You just need to look at them to know that. Yes. <laughs> Certainly not from lived experience. This is entirely correct. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so, like, uh, were you a juggalo? Um, I was, so I'm not, I was never cool enough to be a juggalo. There's something that I've always thought is really cool about juggalos, right? Because that that is that, that is a powerful aesthetic and it takes a lot of like, uh, a special kind of charisma to be in that space. You know, like it takes a lot of personal fortitude to like do clown paint on a normal occasion. And that I think like, I'm, I'm kind of a dork, you know, like I never really got up to that level, but that like, I've always like, like I've been listening to ICP's music since I was a teen, you know, just like a lot of people do. And like, you know, you know, songs like Let's Go All The Way and Homies and stuff like that. Like if that, at least I think like that kind of should speak to a wider audience than it does. There's something really core, you know, like, like the whole point about homies is like your relationship with your friends supersedes your relationship with your boss. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the vibe, the vibe checks out. Okay. I think let's, let's back up for a second. Um, because we we drop the jargon in without unpacking the term. So like what That's true, that's true. We do have to juggle the juggalo jargon. Like what is a juggalo? Or a well, uh, a, a juggalette, if we prefer. I would I would encourage everyone um to uh reference ICP's treatise on this issue. Uh they they wrote an article entitled What is a Juggalo? Uh, which they decided to release as a piece of theory fiction and perform it as art rather than deliver it as a chapter in a uh, you know a novel or uh, something like that. But I think I think uh, it's a, it's a reference that song you know like you know uh, what is a juggalo? Well, ask what it is. Well, fuck if I know. Uh, being one of the lines of the chorus, um, even in the internal logic of the narratology of Insane Clown Posse, there's a resistance to say well a juggalo is X, Y, or Z. There are certain aesthetic markers that we can point to, right? There are hairstyles and clothing trends, and of course, ICP's legendary clown paint that we can we can be like, oh, the, this is this is a juggalo. And then there are like juggalo behaviors and mannerisms that we can we can check out, like consuming rock and rye fago, uh, going to the gathering of the juggalos, being into you know backyard wrestling and stuff like that. But kind of beyond these surface signifiers, I think there's almost an internal resistance to having like a quick, easy, and codified essence of the juggalo. And this is because of this open acceptance towards people who would be rejected, I think, by other social scenes. Uh, yes. I actually, I actually really like uh, this idea that there is no strict uh, definitional category or limit. Um, so even, even, if, even if you never rocked the clown uh, makeup... I, I feel like uh, Juggalo as a category is not one that you have to conform to a very strict sense of what it is to be. It, it has a kind of conceptual elasticity that's designed to include as many oh, people yeah. to to include as many people as possible, right? The, it's 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 a communal positionality. It's it's something that is uh, materially felt in the heart. Yes, yes. I actually think that's a really lovely way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this episode's so much fun already. All the we, you know, like when when we recorded our first episode, so, so many so many holiday seasons passed, 
Um, and we and we spoke dearly of uh, Slavoj Žižek and Gremlins. I did not foresee a future where we were talking about juggalo clown wrestling and drinking fago live on air. Oh god! Oh god! I just I keep drinking it, and it is <laughs> it is just awful. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy that you're having like this intensive a reaction. You know, like like honestly, I would have been a little disappointed if you were just like, "Ah, it's all right." It is. It is. It's a lot. My word. <laughs> I'm. A, I'm a connoisseur of weird American sodas. Uh, I like you know stuff like cheer wine and moxie and like. But oh, rock and Fago. There's something. Rock and Fago is the is the American equivalent of Iron Brew. It it leaves a mark in your soul after you finish drinking a can of that. You know what? I I I get it. I I honestly I think that's easily the <laughs> the best way of understanding it. Um. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. So now, now we've we, we've done some juggalo jargon. Um. So you you and I are both scholars of the Gothic, right? Formerly trained in Gothic studies. Uh, how do we how do we rope and wrangle uh, the insane clown posse and their extended dark carnival universe into our particular little niche? I mean, there's the classic uh, kind of um, surface level. You know, they talk a lot about hatchets and like murdering people and cannibalism. So it's this like very it's almost uh it's it's almost impossible to take them too to take them seriously at all uh, <laughs> which is one of the most <laughs> So I would say they actually fit into the category of like um happy gothic. Like they're not miserable at all. Like there's no there is no sort of like sense of being haunted by history. Um it's it's like it's very joyful ICP. Um what what do you think? I, I think that's really interesting because I think ICP. I don't know if I would call them. There, there is something very positive and very happy about them, right? The best stuff in ICP is when they're doing, like this outspoken support of like some of the strangest marginalized members of the kind of greater communities that they engage with. Um, well, you know, we'll talk about snake busters later as, as a really heart, heartwarming, heartwarming father daughter activity. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. But like there, there's also a lot of like darkness and negativity, right? Like a lot of ICP is mulling over the punishment of people who advance kind of racist, homophobic, misogynistic attitudes Right. And this kind of speaks to the complexity here because these issues, you know, I, I, ICP emerges just like all things that emerge from the United States. It's now awash in this culture of racism, homophobia, misogyny, et cetera, and so forth. Um, but ICP's grappling with that generates the, the, a lot of the gothic space that, that they're dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, their willingness to confront that with... An, expl- an explicit rendering of the implicit violence that underpins that system. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that, that, re- that recognition of the violence that's at the core of this is, I think, one of the things that's most consistently interesting about insane clown posses like greater metaphysics. You know, we're, we're going to talk about the unveiling and this kind of like insane clown theology uh, later in the episode. But, but the kind of this speculative fiction that they have woven over the course of episodes that has a key and returning focal point of bigots writ large 
being tortured on a cosmic level. I think that's uh, that, that's an attempt to formulate a way out of the world we're in now. Yes, um, absolutely. How, however, you know, we, of course, however successful or unsuccessful or limited or problematic that that particular formulation is, it is nevertheless, uh, as, as Zizek might suggest, an attempt to struggle through something rather than to skirt the issue. Yeah, and at least at least it's honest, right? It's hyperbolic and it's it's a kind of like exaggerated representation. But like it all feels very truthful and the their responses to it feel truthful as well. And there is something really refreshing about that too. I I think especially today we are so awash in an age where everything has this like smarmy sorkinian candy coating to it, right? Everybody in in the kind of mainstream media and political sphere is is deeply concerned with their positioning and there's there's something so earnest about the insane clown posse oh yeah absolutely absolutely well should we talk then about how how icp have been received by if we're going to talk about the politics first before we get to the metaphysics um Let's let's talk about the politics and the the, the politics of the Juggalo movement, uh, how ICP are, are received and understood, and where that honestly almost almost like kind of straightforward. I don't want to call it naivety, but like deep core level sincerity gets them. Uh, so I, th- I think I think the first thing to to latch on to um, is is that ICP have become quote unquote the darlings of the left. Uh, this is this is an article uh, written by Jack Smith the Fourth, and it, and it really outlines kind of how ICP accidentally became so, uh, or the left rather, kind of incidentally became in, in really really like endeared to the project of the insane clown posse, mm-hmm. and a lot of this starts with the Juggalo March on Washington. Yes, um, so uh, for people who maybe don't know about this, do you want to kind of fill in the backstory a little bit? Uh, yeah, so so everyone, uh, please please gather around for an insane clown rodeo of wild American politics. Um, so the FBI here in the United States uh, maintains a list of groups it recognizes as criminal gangs. Um, being a member or being identified by the government as a member of one of these groups um, leads to a lot of heightened criminal charges. If if you're recognized as a member of a gang. And you do a crime with other people who are recognizing as a member of a part of that gang. The type of charge you're going to get is elevated considerably. Um, the government recognized Juggalos as a gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, the, the ICP fandom accidentally somehow um, made that list. Uh, the Juggalo March on Washington uh, was in protest of that. They organized uh, and staged a massive uh, march in D.C., massive in Juggalo terms, um, to, to resist this. And, it, and it's woven into this kind of anti-racist, anti-bigot politics that emerges from the rest of ICP's lyrical canon. Um, and, of course, they, they, they turned it into a... The the points are actually really straightforward and, and very good, which is that like being a juggalo is not something that is like a binary state, and also just being a fan and expressing your support of a certain kind of music should not get you into trouble with the FBI. <laughs> right. 
And this, I think, um, to, to, to tie into their like, politi- complicated political messaging, we have songs like Fuck Your Rebel Flag, which yep, is like... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, the legendary banger that they wrote, uh, uh, kind of calling out people who do like contemporary Confederate LARPy shit. Um, and and I think it's <laughs> this is not what people would expect. You know this this idea of like uh, uh, the other thing that I, I realized the other thing I realized about the the Juggalo March was didn't it happen at roughly the same time as like a big big gathering of the Proud Boys. Oh my god! I didn't even know that. <laughs> I love this. Uh, so it's sort of like uh, in Washington D.C. that day, there were like the doughy white people in polos, and also hundreds of juggalos. And it's it's good to know what side the juggalos are on. I, I think that's a good cultural barometer: is is which way your juggalos are going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you also have a point about Juggalo aesthetics, which I think is super interesting and ties directly into the kind of over-policing and over-surveillance of, like, mass culture. So, so the, the characteristic about Juggalo aesthetic, right, the thing that supersedes all other aesthetics that come out of Insane Clown Posse is, is the clown face paint, right? This particular stylization of clown face paint that leans into this kind of minimalist horrorcore aesthetic that's specifically tethered to the face paint itself, right? There are things about this that are very interesting from like a political and a cultural standpoint. And, and the first is that like, especially here in, in kind of the, the hegemonic culture of the United States and UK and Europe, like face paint, that's not in vogue. That's not something that's part of the kind of general zeitgeist for style. So having that as part of their style, it's incredibly like agential, right? It's asserting a space that is essentially empty in culture writ large. One of the effects that this has had, and this is incredibly interesting, is that certain surveillance technologies can't see through Juggalo face paint. Wearing Juggalo face paint, it makes one invisible to certain like automated and algorithmic surveillance systems because they can't recognize the face paint as a human face. And then they can't tie that back to a specific person's identity. Uh, yes, it is. It is like anti-surveillance culture jamming. Um, and mm-hmm. for something that emerged out of like the underground, underground, underground rap and, and backyard wrestling, I think that's amazing. It is, it is just like ceaselessly interesting. You're absolutely right that, that this kind of confluence of things accidentally births like a directionality for people who are really concerned with this automated surveillance technology that's becoming increasingly and worryingly more popular. Well, I, I think I think it's it's time for you. You had something of I don't know if this is a hot take or nevertheless an incredibly interesting take, but you had something you wanted to say about the insane clown posse and perhaps the first juggalo, Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So, so I think this is a good point to sort of jump into this, which is like so. <laughs> Uh, ICP have always said that their their music has a kind of very very moral, very positive message um, about kind of family, about belonging. For example, see their landmark uh, thesis on this, uh, Homies, 
Um, however, uh, the, the problem with the ICP kind of message is that it is a kind of spontaneous utopia, right? So it's sort of just, it just sort of happens that, that, that there is the juggalo community that like, you know, there is this sort of like all-inclusive space which is opened and, and maintained kind of through force of will. Um, and I think the obvious kind of Leninist critique of this is that there is no means by which that can be defended and there is no there is no means by which the by which uh it can be generalized right so the 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 kind of point is that it, it, in a in a post-capitalist world would the need for icp finally be uh met you know <laughs> po- post-revolution Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope be able to finally to take off the clown makeup because their work would be done. That's 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 beautiful. That's beautiful. It's the only way. The but, only way. but what do you think about that? Do you think do you think I'm being a little unfair? Um, I, I think I think there's a lot of things that we can pick apart in that because I think I think you are certainly. Uh, being fair in certain respects, right? Like, I think that's an absolutely like critical observation to make, right? Like the political commentary within ICP doesn't, doesn't kind of move into that next level, right? It doesn't kind of organize and start to congeal, but also in a lived experience, there are some examples of it absolutely doing that, you know, like the gathering of the juggalos is this persistent and incredibly well-organized community event. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that recurs time and time again. They they did pull off the Juggalo March in Washington D.C. Uh, you know, undoubtedly against all conceivable odds. And so there are there are material factors at play here that are making this more than a fandom. And and I think that's an important point to bring up when we talk about Juggalos and ICP because it's not just a fandom for a band in, in the same way that one direct one direction fans don't have this kind of collectivized political agency. Mm, yeah. You know, like, uh, but juggalos do. Is it is it effectively utilized? I think is an entirely separate question. But does it exist? Is a definite yes. Uh, yes, I think I think that's fair. But I am also I am also firmly of the opinion that that post capitalism, um, that juggalos emerges as a a kind of collective solution to to some of the most fundamental problems of capitalism. Um, uh, at very kind of deep core levels, um, but so I, I do think that 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 in in a non capitalist world, the the need that the juggalos uh, represent an answer to would be met already. Like I, I think that's the whole point, right? You know, post post the alienation and exploitation, violence and imperialism of, of capitalist extractivism, uh, you know. The, the the world the world that the juggalo responds to would be fundamentally reordered. <laughs> no, I I completely agree, and I, th- I think this would this would do what I think would be the most interesting and perhaps most beautiful thing it, it, is that it would allow the insane clown posse, it would allow psychopathic records horrorcore, it would allow the juggalos writ large, it, just as it would allow for all of us. To, to kind of move into this new space of creativity and agency and freedom. You know, it would allow all of us to, to effectively blossom together in community 
And, and that naturally means shedding what we used to be in, in a lot of what we were, right? It's a lot of the way we live now is effectively a trauma response dealing with a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precise, and, precisely, and, precisely. Yeah, there, there would be a massive healing that this art community would experience just like it would happen everywhere else. So I, I think you are completely correct. Um, in, in many ways, this is just one of the in, in this is just one of the many ways that being a juggalo is sort of like being a communist, because <laughs> post capitalism, you know, uh, the, the a, a kind of activist str- struggling communism would not be necessary. Post capitalism, the the struggle of the juggalo would not be necessary anymore, um, and their 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 existence is both a kind of beacon of hope for all of us, and also a kind of indictment of how much is still to be done. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, what what is so much of kind of what we see as the Juggalo community, if not like a gigantic mutual aid project that's been sustained for decades? You know? Yeah. Shrug? Yeah. In, in, in so many respects, it fits that as kind of a, a theoretical framework. And I think this, uh, this gets us on to our next section. I think this is important. Uh, because we have to talk about kind of the cultural and artistic response to the insane clown posse or why is it so cool to hate them but is it though i mean you know you were just you were just quoting an article that called them the the darling of the left this is this has been a recent recent phenomenon this has only been within the last three or four years that the left has kind of like i i think uh came to 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 recognizing the inherent class connection that people have with juggalos as a group right um, I, I think insane clown posse, especially like, you know, like if we look at like mainstream cultural response to this, so it's like what SNL parodies and, oh, we're going to talk about the SNL miracle music video. You, you better believe we're talking about that one. Um, but, but I think there's, there's kind of like snide mocking and I think that's because it's easy, right? It's it, ICP is low hanging fruit. If you're looking for something weird to mock. Because uh, they are weird, and I, I think they would be the first to recognize, right? Even in like their lyrical content, they firmly recognize how weird they are. But I think I think this creates kind of like uh, it, it's it's the politics of having your identity based on consumerism. Yes, right? absolutely. Like you, you you are you are a proper individual with proper artistic sensibilities because you dislike these weird clown rappers. Right. It's not an actual engagement with their lyrical content, perhaps, or stylistic issues or political concerns. N- nothing with actual substance and bite to it. It's merely an affective stance. And and weirdly, um, we, we will we can link we can link some of the stuff that we've been talking about in the show notes. Um, and weirdly, the interview with Jim Jeffries and the interview with Bill O'Reilly both yes. both do this, but from the left and right, um, respectively. Oh, absolutely. Abso-fucking-lutely. So do you, do, you want to, do you want to talk about those two interviews then? Because I think that is just... So oh, like that the, Bill O'Reilly interview. The, the Bill O'Reilly one is like a kind of very classic moral panic interview of like, I'm guessing the early 2000s? Bill, Bill O'Reilly was on this kick for a minute where he was having like hashtag problematic musicians come on his show. And he was picking people that from the outside you would expect easy gotchas. Right? He did this with Marilyn Manson too. Right. These are artists that if you kind of just look at them from the CDs that you could see at like a Walmart, you would be like, oh, it's going to be easy to dunk on this guy. I, I'm a career newsman and, and he dresses up like a scary Mickey Mouse, you know, like. But uh, 
to 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 ICP's credit, they like eviscerated him on the news show to the point where by the end of the by the end of the interview, Bill O'Reilly is clearly a little huffed over it. Yeah, uh, and his his whole thing is like. Oh, you say you have this particular aesthetic, and you say these things, and you're a bad. Won't somebody think of the children? Um, and it's very boring, kind of standard culture war, culture war uh, uh, nonsense, essentially. Um, whereas the Jim Jeffries one is is around the the Juggalo March in Washington when they're trying to kind of bring attention to a. A, a a kind of free speech story and Jim's point is like oh aren't these guys goofy and silly and it's like they know that they are yeah. uh, and that interview is is like super kind of um dispiriting because he's quite he's quite dismissive towards them um, he's honestly cruel weirdly he winds up being crueler than Bill O'Reilly because Bill O'Reilly took the threat of ICP seriously Yes, uh, and took the implications of what ICP represents seriously. And Jeffries, mm-hmm. Jeffries just thinks they're a punchline. Yeah. And, and, you, and you can see that in the response that ICP has in these interviews. And, and the Jim Jeffries show, like, they, they immediately sense that they're, someone's like trying to like, you know, trick them, right? That they're the butt of a joke here. Whereas in the Bill O'Reilly interview, like... This is the weirdest thing I'm ever going to say, but Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope are interlocutors in a peer-to-peer conversation with Bill O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the part of that conversation that I, the most interesting thing for me, rather, was that they kept like, um, especially Violent J, kept going back to kind of these like materialistic considerations, right? You know, it's not it's not the lyrical content of his music. It's not his behavior as a musician and an artist and a performer. It's it's these material implications that are in society that are causing problems, right? For for the youth writ large, it's not him, you know, rapping about getting high. It's a culture that doesn't provide basic material necessities for the people who live in it. And it's it's honestly kind of empowering to see this recognized across like the one of the most weirdest manifestations of contemporary American culture. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, should, should we talk about how it gets weird then? Should we talk about the, the great unveiling? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> we, have, we have to do this. Okay. For the, the best moment in, in ICP history, in my opinion. All right. Do you want to s- set this up for, for people? So uh, what we've got is ICP made um, a lot of their initial re- releases in a series of, of albums called the Joker's Cards. There was an internal narrative, a lore to these cards, if you will, that when the last one happened, right, uh, it would be the end of everything, right? It's the show's over at the unveiling of the last card. And, and there was mythology to that. Oh, does the band quit when yeah. they release the last card? Uh, what, what happens? You know, what happens to, to the Juggalo community when this is when the unveiling happens, right? Um, and ICP has always invoked religious metaphor and religious imagery right they're very intentionally theological and in, in their artistic uh production so we get we get to uh the wraith right uh the wraith shangri-la to be specific right where the unveiling happens <clears throat> and the unveiling opens up with this with this song that's just them talking about kind of their history and their career and their earliest days right back with like dog beats and stuff like that like and then they they unveil they unveil the truth and that the meaning of the Joker's cards and the manifest content of their work was a search for the divine. Yep. 
<laughs> uh, to, to quote, the carnival is God and may all juggalos find him. Okay. So what, what, what do we, let's, let's, uh, let's, un, let's, un, let's unveil the unveiling. Let's unpack here. Okay. There is that. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here. Okay. Uh, and, and I feel like we should also read this in conjunction with miracles as well. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, we have to talk about the most infamous song, weirdly, that ICP wound up releasing. Um, and, and uh, so, so, okay, I, I, I could give us, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just sort of like trying to order my thoughts here for a second. Is, um, is, is the rock and rise starting to reach the central nervous system? <laughs> it's re- it's really starting to hit. Okay, so the last great hope of American evangelical uh, uh, Christian religion is clearly the insane clown posse, um, who <laughs> who who have for nearly thirty years been pretending to be about murder and cannibalism, where they when they've actually been about friendship, hating your boss, and um, hating people who are uh, domestic abusers. I would, say, I, I would I would say that uh, the insane clown posse is yes a contemporary manifestation of liberation theology. Uh, yeah, in, entirely in line, entirely in line with like theological social teaching. ICP, uh, ICP get it, but but also um, this is not uncomplicated. This is not simply straightforward. Not only are they um, the best contemporary Christian music that American culture has produced. Um, they've also resisted the kind of co-option of like mainstream evangelical Christian culture. They've they've said they're not a Christian band. They don't they don't go to ch- don't believe, don't go to church. Don't some hope that there is something beyond themselves. And if you if you listen to miracles as well, what they talk about is nothing like innately transcendent. They're not talking about the supernatural or God. They're talking about the material world as transformed by something. Uh, beyond the human subject, uh, which is why theologically, of course, their biggest debt is to Baruch Spinoza. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> really, really, uh, really, the the proto juggalo of them all, uh, Spinoza. Um, so we, t- today, today, everyone, I want you to write this down at home because, of course, you're studying and taking notes. Uh, Vladimir Lenin and Spinoza confirmed juggalos. Um, yeah, and Spinoza's whole point is is about uh, the universe. Nature itself has a kind of divinity to it. It has a transcendent capacity to produce these joyful affects. Uh, and that is about kind of aligning ourselves. Um, uh, yeah, like aligning ourselves with, with, uh, with the, the uh, kind of like wonder of existence itself. What, what what do you think about the theology and metaphysics of the ICP? <laughs> oh, so I, I think this is this is some of the most fun stuff to talk about when when it comes to kind of the the artistic content of the insane clown posse, right? So like like yeah, the, the um, when the the Wraith Shangri La comes out, right? Uh, there's a lot of right Christian evangelical attempts in the United States to be like, oh, there's a market for us here. You know these these clown rappers, they're 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 down with JC. We can get in here. And then they immediately find out how wrong they are because <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. ICP uses uh, Christian language, right? They talk about God and hell and things like this. However, they're expressly not Christian, um, at least in what they say in interviews and, and things like that, right? They're using these words as a, a iconographic set to talk about 
what lies beyond death, divine, religious experiences, things like that. Like this is just a linguistic tool set that they have access to in their lyrics. Um, and I think when we get to miracles, like uh, the song is phenomenally interesting for me. Like everybody, everybody dismissed this song, you know, uh, because of that snide and and vapid SNL uh, parody video that yeah, came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you had all the positivists were, were like, oh, we know how magnets work. And of course we know how magnets work. But, but I think what's inside that song are serious political issues and concerns mixed with attempts to contact something that capitalism loathes. And that's finding the divine in the mundane. Yeah. Right? That, that, that is a slow, ponderous process that does not mesh with the kind of Fordist economy we have today. And, and on top of that, there, there was one line in Miracles that always sticks out to me. And that's, I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed. And for me, that represents a serious breakdown in the modes of cultural communication and ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we live in a, a cultural moment where it's hard to trust science because science has been weaponized by white supremacy. Science has been weaponized by empire. Science has been weaponized by, you know, the, the boss class. Those are the people who control what what science does and how it operates. So, of course, there's apprehension and distrust there. Um, yes. And and also, also, I think the whole point of that song in many ways is is a focus on its on the universalism of it. Right. Oh, they yeah. talk they talk about thousands of fans together. They talk about ev- anyone can do this. Right. Anyone, mm-hmm. it's about a kind of like transformation of consciousness, right? Anyone can go outside and look at the stars and, you know, suddenly, and I think people, there is a kind of positivistic snobbery that is rife through that SNL video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, look at these idiots. And it's like, you know, they're in on the joke, right? You know, th- <laughs> you know, they, you know that they know this, right? But like, they can't help themselves to, to kind of put, put them down. Oh, ab- absolutely. 100%. And I think, um, so, so there's a, there, there's a tabletop RPG game called Morton's List. Uh, that was that was made by the Insane Clown Posse. It's a little difficult to find a physical copy of it these days. It's something of a collector's item, but it, 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 essentially, it's it's a it's a real life RPG. You roll on this table of activities, and then you you do the activity you land on. Um, and and there, there are caveats made, like for example, if you roll on a certain activity and your personal faith uh, forbids that activity, you can modify it or change it. Things like that. Um, but but you make like a sacred pact when you play the game to complete whatever activity you land on, right? With with dire cosmic consequences intimated if you should not go through with it. And like I've never like there are serious ones. There are ones where it's just like 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 you know like unveil the meaning of life, travel to outer space, right? Like literally go become a monk, master kung fu. There's like things that would literally take your entire life to complete if you land on them. I've only ever landed on easy stuff where it's like go to the park dress up like a superhero and go outside. Like I've landed on the silly things <laughs> in alignment with the cosmic essence of my character. I just land on the weird, goofy stuff. Um, but that, that game is about challenge. Like, like that game is situationist, right? That, that, that game is about fundamentally reforging your relationship with your day-to-day life. And, and underneath all of those activities is I, I think an incredibly viable political question. And that's why do we see these things as being kind of divine? 
why don't we have access to this spontaneity in our day-to-day life? Why, what about the construction of our society holds back these moments? Yeah. And, and, and here we have two adult men in clown makeup rapping about a magic carnival pointing this stuff out. And this is, but like, this is what clowns have always done, right? This is, there, there's, there's a kind of long tradition um, in, in like, especially in the context of the carnivalesque, right? There is, and the, and to give it its kind of Shakespearean title, the role of the fool, the whole point is to be able to speak truth to power in such a way that it is outside the normal hierarchies of power's disciplinary exercise, you know, think of think of the fool in King Lear. Um, Stuart, Stuart, the British stand-up comedian Stuart Lee makes a very similar point about what what his shows are for. It's about uh, uh, it's a kind of clowning that steps out of the the performative circle and engages people, um, which is just one of the many ways that ICP cross over with art house British stand-up comedy. Um, <laughs> But like the cl- the clown has always been this kind of like marginal figure, right? They've been they they exist in this space in which social 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 norms, but more broadly social order itself, is called into question. Oh, absolutely, and like especially within the history of American clowning, right? You have figures like the tramp, the bum, and the hobo as as recurring clown characters with very specific identities within those three. Uh, the kind of like you know figure of the clown has has a very potent purpose, and that's to by putting on this clown costume, right? By by absorbing this space of pure ridicule, you can then direct that ridicule, right? By becoming an, an object of, of of pure ridicule, you're able to channel it, you know. And and we see ICP as as the contemporary heir to that legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And of course, and of course, uh, as you pointed out, clowns are often cl- clowns are often poor, right? You you end up existing. You like the whole point is that disruption of the so- social order is also a disruption of the class system, right? The the clown, the fool, uh, often comes from poverty. Often comes from a really um, a really tough economic background. Um, and or no matter their success or no matter their their kind of influence, they always remain kind of marginal. And honestly, I think a lot of the dismissal of ICP is simple classism, right? Oh, I I completely agree. Like this is this is uh, and to use this term very intentionally here, this is low class music, and and I use that in a positive way, right? Like like there are, there are things and and there are so many cultural signifiers that are woven into the fabric of the insane clown posse aesthetic. That would not be there if this was the insane yacht club posse. Oh yeah, absolutely, oh, completely correct. Do Do you have any any final thoughts as we as we uh, wrap this up? I think th- this has been one of the most refreshing episodes I, I think we, we've ever done. To just kind of like freewheeling uh, using insane clown posse music videos and the board game and like all this weird stuff as text to draw interpretation from. And and seeing all these like universalities and common threads and connections and reasons why, you know, like the, the, this is just a classic Zizekian point here, right? Like if you're not taking the art that your culture is producing seriously, what the hell are you doing? You know, like that that snide mockery of SNL is designed to to service this kind of upwardly mobile liberal aesthetic 
that that would sneer at those things that are downward um but instead we should do the opposite right we should you know as i often say on the show the only way to critique art is to look at level dead in the eye and and this is more so true for icp than it is for so many other pieces of art you know what i i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more um and you know they've they they have just kept doing their thing they've just kept going uh for for decades now um and honestly this has been so much fun this has been this has been so so fun and we we may return to icp in the future but i think we can we can safely say that this has been one of the most kind of po- overwhelmingly positive uh horror vanguard episodes we've done in quite some time um Really excited about the rest of this month. We're going to be talking about some really interesting stuff. Um, and as ever, thank you so much to everyone who listens to the show, everyone who takes the time to support the show. If you would like us to uh, think about covering something, um, please do join the Discord by supporting us through patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. Chip in a couple of bucks, and we have an entire channel on the server dedicated for keeping track of movie suggestions. Um, let us know what you think, what your favorite ICP song is, and um, we'll see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky. Spooky.